Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Lasting 68 years, Kenich Yanab Pakal is the longest reigning monarch in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Starting in 615, Pakal transformed the Mayan city-state of Palenque from an often conquered client kingdom to a regional powerhouse in southern Mexico. Known for his immense building projects, the discovery of Pakal's intact tomb has led some to call him the Tutankhamun of the Americas. In a Mayan society fueled by endless competition and brutal war, this great king stands as a giant amongst others of his day. On this episode, we discuss Kenich Yanab Pakal, King of Palenque. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 4 of the series, we're discussing Game Changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, on our author's website, bradykreitzer.com, on our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash bradyjkreitzer, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Our wartime world tour continues here in Season 4, taking us on this episode to southern Mexico. When you're dealing with ancient civilizations, there's only one name in that region, the Maya. Now, today's episode is going to feature one of the most prominent Mayan kings in all of history. In fact, at 68 years, he has the longest reign of any leader in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Even more than that, His reign is the 27th longest in all of world history. That sounds like a pretty important person. It sounds like a person that we should know about. Well, thank goodness for podcasts. We're talking, of course, about Kenich Hanab Pakal, the great overlord and king of the Mayan city of Palenque. Now, as always, when we're dealing with foreign cultures, maybe alien cultures for some of us, It's important that we set the stage, we set the tone, we utilize the correct methods to set the background to put all of this in context, especially this season. When we're jumping from place to place and region to region, person to person, we need to, again, build this world around our subject. That is not exactly an easy thing to do with Lord Pakal, but we'll do our best. A lot of people ask me, as a professional historian, What is the difference between history and archaeology? Are you separate and do you work together? And of course, they are very separate disciplines. Archaeology is much more of a physical science, although history is a big part of it. And believe it or not, in time, we can actually work together. Mayan history is one of those common areas. If you view history and archaeology as a Venn diagram, where do they meet? Central and South America. So let's talk a little bit about the Maya, what we know about them, again just a bit, to set the stage for our subject of Lord Pakal. If there is one place where history is still being written, and I mean like a first draft of history, I mean like earth-shattering discoveries, it's not the ancient Near East, and it's not Egypt, 
Uh, not anymore. Maybe 150 years ago, yes. Maybe when Indiana Jones was fictionally traipsing through the world, yes. But... Um, anymore, again, there have been so many people digging there, so much studying going on there, you're not going to see the big world-changing discoveries made there anymore. I mean, you're certainly not going to be crawling through trap doors and dodging giant rolling boulders and, and poisonous darts and the like. Um, and you, truth be told, you probably would never do that anyway, but there is a place in the world. Uh, where the mystery lives, and of course, again, it's the Mayan world. Uh, southern Mexico and northern Guatemala, parts of Belize, and so on. Believe it or not, now you've probably all seen uh, Mayan temples, you've seen Mayan cities. Believe it or not, conservatively, we've only excavated about 8-9% to of the Mayan world. Some archaeologists and historians would take that even further. They'd say maybe we've only excavated 5% of the Mayan world. And you really can't understand how little we know about these people until you understand how we learned about them in the first place. Now, as long as the Spanish have been arriving in North America, and this goes back to the 16th century, the 1500s, these, what they called Casas de Piedras, these houses of stone, were well known. Now, the jungle has completely consumed these structures uh, to the point where you couldn't recognize them. But uh, Spanish explorers have been stumbling across them for centuries, and natives who have lived in the area have known about them forever. I mean, the idea of a lost city is one that's very uh, romantic, or it's very mystical, it's very enthralling for a lot of people. But the idea is it's really only lost to Europeans. Uh, many of the native peoples who live in the region, many of them uh, descendants of the original Maya, knew quite well where they were. But again, you can't have a sense of how little we know about the Maya until you go to these places. Now, in 2011, I was very fortunate to spend the summer uh, moving throughout Belize uh, and uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, and I've seen a lot of these Mayan sites, and believe me when I say, it is shocking how little we know about these people. I mean, there are places in southern Mexico where you can stand on top of a temple that's been totally cleared of forest, and you can look out into a very flat, uh, low-lying plain of rainforest. And all throughout that plain, you see what look like small mountains and hills, endlessly, as far as the eye can see. Uh, the example we'll use today, the city of Palenque, covered about 16 square miles. I mean, that's as far as you can see. And the shocking thing is, uh, when you realize those aren't mountains at all, those are not natural landforms, those are temples. This is a city that's been completely swallowed up by the rainforest, and we haven't even begun to clear them yet. The city of Palenque, who, which we'll talk about today, is really about 5% excavated. Um, the center of the city has been excavated and cleared, uh, but again, 16 square miles, completely buried by the rainforest. Who knows what we're going to find there? Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, so what? Get digging, right? Uh, but you have to understand how we learn about Mayan history. Because all of these temples and all of these buildings are absolutely covered in hieroglyphs. And these hieroglyphs are very detailed, very meticulously created for very specific purposes. These hieroglyphs tell the story of the Mayan people, quite frankly. That's what they do. They tell a thousand-year odyssey, effectively. And the funny thing is, we haven't been able to read them until about 15 years ago, uh, 15 to 20 years ago, whenever a, a archaeologist named David Stewart finally deciphered them. Now imagine that. We've known these Mayan cities have been in place for now 500 years, from the European perspective, 
Only in the last 15 can we actually read what they're saying. So every time you uncover a new building, you don't only uncover a new temple with its passageways and its tombs, but you uncover an entirely new history that literally hasn't been written yet. I mean, it is impossible to write a history of the Mayan peoples, because every week, especially in the summertime, whenever archaeologists can get away from the classroom and get into those places, every week you're finding a new discovery. You're finding out about a new ruler no one knew existed, about a, a new war that happened that maybe lasted for generations. I mean, these are things that, from the Western perspective, yeah, we know all about them. But imagine if you didn't know these kings' names, if you didn't know their history and their past. I mean, Mayan history is being written as we speak. So in that regard, this will be maybe an incomplete episode compared to someone like uh, Alexander the Great, or, or even more so Vlad the Impaler, who we've already talked about. But it's still very important. We put Lord Pakal in context. But you have to understand the Mayan world as well. You know, really, if you ask most people today to talk about the Mayans, they could probably tell you very little. Yeah, stone temples, and they'll probably go on and on about the year 2012, really the apocalypse that wasn't. And what you'll see is that's sort of, you know, part of the issue we have with the Maya, is we had such a misunderstanding of the complexity of their world. That an event like the Mayan apocalypse 2012, what we perceive to be a Mayan apocalypse, really was... Nothing. And if you understood the Maya, you knew there was very little to it. Don't tell that to Hollywood, and certainly don't tell that to the History Channel. But this is important we understand this. Um, Mayan history is very incomplete, but it's being written every day. So if you do want to go into history as a profession, specifically if you're unlike me and you like to get your hands dirty, you want to go into archaeology as a profession, don't go into the Near Eastern studies and expect to find something incredible, because odds are you won't. Go into Central American archaeology, specifically the Maya, and you can literally discover whole cities uh, on your own, untouched by human beings, for almost 1,500 years. I mean, that is amazing. Mayan archaeology does have some very exciting elements to it. You will be climbing through temples and through tunnels that really haven't been climbed through, uh, again, in over a millennia. There are examples of poison traps left by these people from the ancient world that still exist, one we'll talk about today. But these are the kind of things that I think really draw a lot of people to the Maya, but most don't understand how little we know and how much more we have to go. Again, think of that, 95% of the story has not been told yet. Where do you want to be when that history is written? Again, I wish I knew this. Uh, when I was studying to be a historian. But at any rate, I'm doing okay. So, let's talk about uh, Pakal, let's talk about Pelenque, and jump right into the story. Now, Pelenque has been uh, understood, I mean, it's been known about uh, in the modern discourse, really for about 200 years, maybe a little more. I mean, this is going back to the 1700s. Early Spanish explorers were told by locals uh, that these houses of stone exist in the in the rainforest. Now, where am I talking about? This is modern southern Mexico. Uh, this is the reason we call Chiapas, Mexico. Uh, the Mayan heartland uh, was generally situated uh, on the Yucatan Peninsula, southern Mexico, northern Guatemala, and Belize. That's what it is today. It was about half the size of Texas. There's a few things you have to understand about the Maya, not just how we discover their history, but the Maya themselves, before any of this will make sense to you. We like to use the word empire in this podcast. It's officially part of my title. I'm an imperial historian. But we can't fool ourselves into believing that every large, massive political body 
was an empire, because an empire implies one person is controlling the entire polity, and that was absolutely, positively never the case in the Mayan world. The Maya were a society. They were a culture. They had a very specific way of life. They spoke very similar, if not the same, languages. They had the same customs. Uh, they valued the same aspects of culture as a society. Um, they dressed the same way. They looked the same way. Uh, they were a shared, unified culture. But this is much more like Greece than like any empire we've seen, in that they are very divided at an internal level. They are a collection of city-states. They're not one empire. No one person will ever control the entire Mayan world. You have many different kings, have many different small cities, and sometimes very big cities, uh, but no one controls them all. So this is much more like Greece and early Mesopotamia than anything we've seen since. Uh, cities will war against one another. Cities will trade with one another. Uh, some cities will have long-standing rivalries. Many cities will be conquered by one another. Warfare is one of the real hallmarks of the Mayan world. So again, when you look at the major cities uh, of the Mayan world, places like Kalakmul, places like Tikal. Uh, by the way, if you've seen Star Wars A New Hope, you've seen Tikal, that's uh, Yavin 4, but that's a whole different podcast. Uh, these kind of places exist in the same universe. But you have to remember, they do not exist in any sphere, in any way, shape, or form that connects to the larger Western world. I mean, people need to understand this. We always like to talk about how cultures are different because they, they share differing histories. But none of the same rules apply to the Maya as it does to the rest of Europeans. I mean, think about this. Even in the darkest corners of sub-Saharan Africa, you had these isolated cultures that would, at times, even in small ways, come in contact with the larger world. In the Middle East, in Europe, I mean, these land masses are connected. They would literally share cultures, some more than others. And their traditions would, would in essence, matriculate through one another's, and it worked both ways. Cultural diffusion is a two-way street. But imagine a world where there is an absolutely, positively no contact between these worlds in any way, shape, or form. Imagine that. Imagine the Maya tracing their lineage back for thousands of years. And then imagine the Egyptians or the Romans or the Greeks tracing their lineage back for thousands of years and having absolutely no common societal ancestor. What that means is everything is different about these people. The way they live, the way they view life, the way they fight, the way they view war. I mean, these are all completely different. I don't think it's going too far to say that when Columbus first crossed the ocean and met with these peoples, uh, that's the best example that we have of what alien life visiting our planet would be like. Just two worlds, completely separate, developing completely isolated from one another. And that really goes a long way. We can't stress that enough. In the simplest way, now that I've rambled on about it for five minutes, we can say that the same rules do not apply to the Maya. The same rules do not apply to the Aztec. The same rule do not, rules do not apply to the Olmec or the Incas. It's an entirely different sphere of humanity. You have to understand that. You'll see them do things that will make you scratch your head. From our perspective, it makes no sense. But your perspective is from an entirely different world than theirs. So that being said, let's get into Pakal. The city that Pakal will rule over 
is a city that we call today Pelenque. And this is a Spanish name for the region. It sort of was adopted by the people. Again, we didn't know what it was called uh, until we began to decipher the hieroglyphs involved. But this region and this city has been known about for 200 years. Whenever you would see it, uh, it would be very vast, again, 16 square miles, but the jungle was mostly encapsulating it. So from the perspective of us moderns, it was very enigmatic. And the world became sort of hypnotized, you could say, uh, by this ancient lost city. There were books written about it in Britain. There were books written about it in Germany. P.T. Barnum, the great sort of um, flim-flam man, man of his day in America, of course, took advantage of this and uh, took two Salvadorian children and took them around the world claiming they were descendants of these people. He had no idea. He called them the Aztec Lilliputians, uh, which, you know, is pretty troublesome. But at any rate, what I'm saying is, when Palenque was first discovered in Chiapas, in Mexico, this overgrown lost city, people just were uh, insatiable in terms of the information they could get about it. And whenever someone would actually visit these locations, because that was not easy. Okay, Southern Mexico is not easy to get to today uh, or in, say, 1700 and 1800 and 1900. Uh, people couldn't get enough. So it's important you understand Palenque has been there for a long time, but only in the last 15 to 20 years do we have any idea what happened there. Now, one of the hallmarks of Palenque and again, the center of the city is cleared today. The other, what, 15 miles, not even close, was that one figure tended to stand out above all others. He was a man. He had a very pronounced uh, facial feature. He had a very big nose. He had a very small chin. He wore very similar headdresses and decorations. But we had no idea who this person was. And almost every generation that went there, it seemed, learned something new about him, whoever he is, and also threw in their own interpretations as to what he did, even though they knew very little about him. I mean, that's the story of Pelenque. That's really the story of all Mayan archaeology, is that we find a lot of information that would be very useful, but we have no idea what to do with it, so we kind of put our own spin on things. And that's really the case until the advent of modern archaeology in the 20th century. You see, in the year 1945, 1946, all the way to 1952, an archaeologist from Mexico named Alberto Ruiz uh, began to work on Pelenque. And not only was he clearing off buildings, but he was studying older buildings that have already been long excavated as well. At the center of the city, and again, it's a massive city, was a very big temple covered, uh, top to bottom, every square inch, uh, in inscriptions. Mayan hieroglyphs. Uh, they were telling us something. We didn't know what. We couldn't read them. Uh, but they were clearly important. So Alberto Ruiz will begin to work on this building we call the Temple of the Inscriptions. He goes all the way to the top. Now the Temple of the Inscriptions has nine levels. It's like a big wedding cake. And anytime you see nine levels on a Mayan temple, that should tip you off right away. And this is just something we've recently learned that it has something to do with death and the afterlife. All Mayans believe in the same afterlife. They call it Shibalba, uh, and Shibalba is the underworld. So anytime you see that nine-leveled pyramid, if you would, uh, looks like a big wedding cake, a big square wedding cake, that has something to do with uh, the underworld. If you're new to the podcast, you'll see that, and this should tell you where my mind is, 
When it comes to buildings and building shapes, most of the time I equate them in some way to some kind of pastry or dessert, so uh, there's that. But at any rate, the Temple of the Inscriptions was very well known. Again, covered in hieroglyphs, uh, and many, many of them were images of this man. Clearly, he was a distinguishable person. This was not several people. This was the image of the same man in many ways. Alberto Ruiz uh, goes to the top of the temple of the inscriptions, and he goes into the doorway. And what he finds is at the top, the very top level of this temple, uh, has uh, giant stone slabs on the floor with holes in them. These holes were big. They were probably four and a half uh, inches in diameter, but nobody who had visited the site in 200 years had really paid much attention to it. I mean, some people recognized they were there, but no one ever thought of what they could be. But again, archaeology had developed to the point that Alberto Ruiz knew exactly what he was looking at. He had an idea that those slabs were put in place to cover an opening. Now, he didn't know what was under there. He had a pretty good idea it might be a tomb. But again, for 200 years, this place has been ground zero for Mesoamerican or Central American archaeology, and no one ever think to move the things. So that's exactly what he does, and when he does it, he finds dirt. Go figure. Again, archaeology is not for me. I don't like to get my hands dirty. You know, the extent of archaeology for me is weed-whacking my yard, effectively. But uh, Ruiz couldn't wait to get into that dirt. Now, he didn't know how deep the dirt was. It could have been 3 feet deep. It could have been 100 feet deep. But he had his archaeological team arrive and start digging. In 1948, he dug down 23 steps. What he realized was this was a passageway with traditional stairs. In that year, 23 steps. 1949, Ruiz goes another 23 steps. 1950, about 23 steps. You're getting the, the idea. Archaeology moves very slow, but all the while they're digging out this dirt in this temple. Uh, they're finding artifacts, they're finding skeletal remains, they're finding clues of what might be beneath. Finally, by 1952, Alberto Ruiz gets to the bottom of the chamber, it's entirely cleared out. He's in the Temple of the Inscriptions. Nobody has been in that location uh, for the better part of 1,400 years. And when he gets to the bottom, what does he see? An empty room. If you want to equate this to the discovery of, say, maybe you could say the American King Tut, I think that'd be a fair analogy. But at the bottom of this temple, he finds an empty room, and he's very crestfallen. He's upset. That's part of archaeology. They found a lot of great stuff on the way down. But he doesn't know exactly what he's looking at. Now, he has some local Mexican guides with him. These are Mayan descendants. And one of them pulled him aside and said, Professor Ruiz, there's a large triangular stone in that wall. And they were right. It was about five feet tall. And they said, I bet if you move that, there might be something back there. They move the triangular stone, they find an antechamber, and in that chamber is a tomb. It's a large stone slab. Now again, Ruiz isn't sure what this is. That will, as we say, hold the body of the king, this great, um, this great person who seems to be pictured in hieroglyphs all over the city. We'll talk about that slab at the end of the uh, of this episode, if we have a little more time. But when they moved the slab, and Ruiz actually had to go to town and get 15 uh, car jacks, automobile jacks, to get this lid off, it's enormous, he found in the tomb the body of this king. Uh, as it turns out, again, David Stewart's discovery about 20 years ago from 2015, in the 90s, uh, finally was able to crack the code of what all these hieroglyphs say. And now suddenly we have a whole different story of who this great king is. This king 
reigned again for 68 years. We know that because it's all clearly written. These hieroglyphs have incredible amounts of detail. Uh, for historians, their dream. Again, the problem is we just couldn't read them, so every day we're learning something new. But his name was Kenich Hanab Pakal. Uh, that was his, his full name. We will call him Pakal for short. Pakal means shield. And as it turns out, he'll be one of the greatest kings in the history of the Mayan world. Now remember, he's only the king of Pelenque. There is no king of all of the Mayan uh, uh, universe. Uh, you know, individual city-states have kings. But we'll talk about some of the things that he does and kind of fill in some of the gaps of who he is. Because when you talk about the Mayans, Pakal is the man. Uh, until we find the next one, that is. So a little bit about him. The Mayan calendar is very accurate. It's very different than our calendar, but it's effectively been used to uh, do what we can say is tame eternity. And what I mean by that uh, is that they have a repeating system. You know, we do 12 months, 365 days a year, and that can go on forever. They have a very similar system. Uh, and it's meant to make the vast span of time something predictable and something attainable. And the end of the world was never a part of that. So, um, at any rate... We know the dates of Pakal's life because the records are incredibly important. Incredibly important. Uh, and he's born in the year 603. Now, he won't become king of Palenque until the year 615. And even then, his reign is somewhat speculative. So let me give you a quick history of Palenque based on what we're reading on these temples. Again, we've had these sources for hundreds of years, but we just could not read them. I'm getting excited here because this just doesn't happen anymore in the modern world. At any rate, here's the story. At about the year 600, this is our 600 CE, 600 years after the birth of Christ, we know that there is a major war between the city of Palenque and a rival city of Kalakmul. And by a major war, it wasn't much of one. Kalakmul devastated the city of Palenque and made them political subjects. We know that. It's written down in the Mayan sources. So what we can say is that when Pakal is born, Pelenque, his great city, uh, is no such thing. It's sort of been beaten, it's sort of been kicked around, it's kind of a dark age for them. Now in the year 611, the king of Pelenque dies. The man who takes over will be the father of our lord Pakal. He'll die the same year too. So by the year 612, you've been through two kings in one year, your political subjects, uh, the day has never been darker. Someone needs to step up and lead these people. Now, there's a lot of rival families, ruling factions. Those same rules apply, interestingly enough, in all of humanity. But the person who will step up to lead uh, from the year 612 for about three years till 615 of all people is a woman. The wife of the fallen king we call Lady Sok Cook. Now, Lady Sok Cook is important. Because she, by our standards, is one of the only female rulers in the history of the Mayan world. And because we know Pakal is already born, and by the year 612 he's nine years old, in all likelihood she's just serving as a regent until he's ready to take over. By the year 615, Pakal will hit maturity, the age of 12, he will become the new king. But while Lady Sokkuk is in power, there's a lot of rumblings in, in Palenque, and we know this because, again, the sources. But a lot of the rumblings were from the fact that she was a woman uh, in a world that was very much a man's world. What business did she have ruling? Well, Bacall is very clear later on in life, and we'll talk about why, 
that his family descends from an ancient goddess. And this ancient goddess is divine, there's no question about it. Because of that, Lady Sok Cook should have been able to rule. That means her reign is legitimate, and as his mother, that will mean his reign is legitimate. But at any rate, in the year 615, the 12-year-old Pakal takes over, and he won't leave this earth for another 68 years. That's pretty incredible. Now, I'll say again, I would love to give you a blow-by-blow of Pakal's life. But the reality is, we just don't have it. And there's a few reasons for it. And again, as historians, we should never turn away from a subject based on a lack of evidence or a scarcity of evidence. We should just address why that scarcity exists and make that part of the story. So, what can we say about Pakal? Early on in Pakal's reign, again, at 12 years old, the year 615, we see very little written about his life. We just don't see it. Uh, but later on in his reign, when he hits about the age of 40 or so, uh, we see all of a sudden an explosion of inscriptions all about his life. So much so that all over these buildings, uh, in the city of Palenque, you see his great achievements, you see what he does, and all of these things. So the question is, why does that happen? I mean, we could answer it a few ways. We could say, one, maybe he just doesn't do anything at that point. May or may not be true. Or two, there must be some reason that he suddenly feels the need to validate himself. Because remember, these things are being done. These inscriptions are being created because he's demanding it. So what's the most likely scenario? Well, remember, uh, Lady Sock Cook was effectively queen of Palenque for three years. The 12-year-old Pakal takes over in 615. In all likelihood, I don't think uh, we would probably see the queen just fall out of uh, the way and let her 12-year-old son rule a kingdom. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't happen in Europe. It doesn't happen in Asia. It will not happen here in the Mayan world. Lady Sock Cook very likely remains a major part uh, of uh, the decision-making process of Palenque until her death. Her death, incidentally, coincides with this explosion of history and inscriptions that I've mentioned that Pakal seems to order to have built. So in all likelihood, even though Pakal is recognized as king of Palenque, his mother is still probably calling most of the shots. Uh, and you can imagine that until she is out of the way, until she is gone, he probably doesn't feel, I guess, uh, comfortable uh, glamorizing and romanticizing and, and crumpeting his, 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 his achievements when everybody in the city knows he's really not in charge. But after Lady Sock Cook's death, we see Palenque explode with, again, history suddenly, and Pakal's world changes forever. Now, as I've mentioned, there was a lot of political intrigue involved around Pakal's rule because, again, his ruling family wasn't necessarily the family that had been traditionally in power uh, in Palenque. So there's always a lot of naysaying, we can say, about Pakal's life. A lot of people questioning whether he should even be on the throne and therefore question, questioning and undermining his authority. Because of this, Pakal will take on an enormous campaign of construction. He's going to build temples all over Palenque. He's going to build palaces all over Palenque. He's going to build tall towers all over Palenque. And all of them talk about him, his legitimacy, and his lineage back uh, to the uh, goddess uh, that, again, his family traces their heritage to. And again, all of this is designed, quite simply, to legitimize his throne. I mean... 
talk about compensating, right? Uh, maybe you don't have the the papers to prove you belong where you are. Uh, so he basically invents them. He puts them everywhere. And that's the idea. Again, he's always sort of very sensitive about that. And all of these buildings are basically a result of that, justifying his own political rule. Now, we know that the king has power. I mean, there's no question about that. But eventually, you kind of wonder if people would maybe stop with the veneration of the king upon his request. I mean, these inscriptions are done with incredible precise detail. And as I've mentioned earlier, when you see a sculpture or an inscription of Pakal, you know it's him. Because one thing you can typically say about Pelenke is that their artwork is incredibly specific and very, very detailed. So what we're trying to say here is that Bacall eventually must start doing something right, because all of a sudden these temples are less about his family lineage and heritage and more about his achievements. But even more than that, and this is what's very important, later temples still venerate Pakal, Pakal's uh, brother and Pakal's son and Pakal's grandchildren, and even beyond that, all begin to make inscriptions detailing the triumphs and achievements of this uh, long-gone figure of Pakal, again, far, far beyond his death. So if we can say there's a legacy of Pakal in Pelenke in the Mayan world, it's that he must revive the city in some way, shape, or form. Remember, when he took over uh, in the year 615, you were about 15 years after a total defeat at the hands of the city of Kalakmul, their neighbors. And people were probably pretty down on themselves in some sort type of golden age. Some type of significant achievement must have occurred in Pelenque during Pakal's life. Because based on his burial and the discovery of his tomb and all of the inscriptions about him, um, it's very clear that he was a person of, of major importance. Because there are other Mayan kings who do not receive that treatment. Now, let's get back to the archaeology a little bit. Because much like King Tut, who we talked about in Season 2 of Wartime, I'd encourage you to go back. Lord Pakal won't necessarily uh, maybe be as famous in life as he will be in death. Now, when we left off in 1952, Alberto Ruiz discovered a tomb, and in that tomb was Lord Pakal. That tomb has become the point of some controversy, for reasons that I even hate to bring up, but I think it's important, if nothing else, history is a discussion and a dialogue and a debate, and sometimes a healthy debate is necessary. One thing you have to understand about the Mayans, and again, it comes from a completely different tradition from the West, that is probably what you know, is that symbolism is very, very specific, but at the same time, highly generalized. But it's also very well understood. So, in a lot of Mayan imagery, and a lot of Mayan hieroglyphs, you'll see things that seem totally bizarre. For example... The sides of Pakal's tombs have images of his ancestors, his mother, his father, his grandfather. And their bodies in the inscriptions are fused with plants. Think of that, like plants. Um, and the reason is, again, you can see, you know, Pakal's father infused with a cacao tree. That was a major food, food stuff for them, uh, in southern Mexico. It's because these symbols are understood to show that these people ruled during prosperous times. And symbols associated with the sun, and with water, and with uh, crops of all kind, maize and so on, 
all carry a very specific meaning. That's important. Now, the slab that sat on top of Pakal's tomb, and if you'll look at your, your device, whatever you're listening on, your phone or your computer, I actually changed the image this season. Instead of the wartime image when this episode plays to an image of the subject in question, because I think seeing them is important. But this one is practically important. The image is uh, basically an artistic representation of the top of Pakal's tomb, colorized, so you can see the difference. And these are all, again, very clear, very well understood Mayan hieroglyphs. Whenever Pakal's tomb was first discovered, there's a lot of stuff going on, it's very hard to tell. But as the years went by, and as we began to decipher more and more about the Mayan language and history, all of a sudden this tomb becomes pretty run-of-the-mill. I mean, if you know what you're looking at, you know exactly what is on top of that sarcophagus lid. The Mayans believe that the world as we know it is a tree. Okay, just follow me here. The roots of the tree are in Shibalba, the underworld. The branches and flowers of the tree are in the cosmos. The Mayans always had a unique connection with the sun and the stars and the sky. I mean, how many people today could go outside, look at the sun, uh, go outside and look at the stars and tell you what time of year it is? Not many. We have machines that do that. We don't need it. But in an agrarian world, Reading the sky was a matter of life and death. So the flowers of this world tree are in, in the cosmos. The roots are in the underworld, Shibalba. And right in the middle, the branches, we could say, is the plane in which we here on Earth exist. On this uh, sarcophagus lid, Lord Pakal is lying in Shibalba. He's facing up. The world tree is behind him. And what the image is showing is that uh, he's rising up the world tree into the cosmos and the heavens. Now, for a long time, we believed that the image was actually showing uh, Lord Pakal falling into the underworld, which was totally possible. But based on what we know of underworld representations, again, Pakal is laying on the head of a serpent. The, the mouth of the serpent is sort of facing you. That has a lot to do with symbolism of the underworld. The great bird in the sky is there. Pakal's ancestors are on the tomb. It's a very intricate artistic representation. But there is absolutely positively no doubt of what we're seeing there. It was pretty clear. I mean, that's what we had. And then, you know, came like the 1970s, a lot of trippy stuff, 1980s, kind of even weirder, and then the modern day. And people have an entirely new interpretation of this sarcophagus lid, which is completely devoid of realistic understanding or any, any semblance of Mayan history. So what's the new interpretation? If you have seen this sarcophagus lid, you've probably seen it on the History Channel. Because people who believe that what we call the ancient aliens theory say this is an image of a man in a spaceship. Okay. And Pakal is going to outer space uh, on an alien spacecraft. Um, here's the deal. And I have to say a few things before I, I say this. Number one, you have to be a fool, I believe, to think there's no life outside of the planet Earth. The universe is too big. So yes, I believe in life on other planets. You could even convince me in some cases that aliens probably visited Earth. I'd be willing to say, you know, anything's possible. But what I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, without even the slightest hesitation, is that that tomb... And that sarcophagus lid has absolutely zero to do with aliens. Nor do the pyramids in Egypt, nor do anything else you'll see on the History Channel. 
Aliens did not visit George Washington at Valley Forge. Aliens did not build the Great Wall of China. You have to understand, and again, I'll say very frankly, I believe there's life on other planets. This is not me saying aliens don't exist. It's just giving credit where credit is due. When you say aliens built the Great Wall of China and aliens built the pyramid, that's a real slap in the face of the people that, you know, actually did it. You know, who are you to think that mankind is not capable of such feats of engineering? We made the iPhone. We put a man on the moon. We can go to the bottom of the seas. I just saw a documentary. James Cameron did it. Good for him. Uh, we could do those kind of things. We have the technology to do it, but we've always had the innovative nature to dream them up. So when you see Pakal's tomb, uh, it might look to you like a rocket ship in 2015 because you know what a rocket ship is. But again, that's you looking from your own time. I saw a, a, an inscription. One of the earliest inscriptions in human history, Neanderthal man, uh, put it together. It was in France. And what it was was two sets of parallel lines running perpendicular to each other. It looked like a tic-tac-toe board. It was an early Neanderthal inscription. Now, from the 1980s to the 1990s into the 2000s, we would have said, okay, that's just a neat, you know, inscription. But now suddenly, because our own world is changing, we might see something different. Boy, that looks a lot like a hashtag, doesn't it? So we could deduce, using ancient aliens' logic, that, well, clearly Neanderthals were using Twitter because they made a hashtag. No, that's just your own age's interpretation of what you're seeing. It wasn't necessarily one that existed before. So again, take a good look at Pakal's sarcophagus lid. It's the image of this episode. And again, understand the deep symbolism involved. There is nothing... And I mean absolutely nothing controversial about this tomb. So much so that when Alberto Ruiz found it originally in the 1950s, he knew exactly what he was looking at. I mean, these are all very basic Mayan symbols. If you believe otherwise, it's because you're operating in a world where really nothing else matters but that opinion you already have. And you can't be swayed away from it. So again, that's my barrage of the ancient aliens theorists. And again, I'm not trying to say there are no aliens, and I'm not trying to say what they're doing is in some way wrong. I mean, it's their life, they can do what they want. But in this regard, it has nothing to do with fact or reality. And I'm angry I just spent almost 10 minutes on it. So at any rate, the Mayan world is one that we're still striving to understand. Pakal was powerful. Pakal was immensely powerful. But, who's to say he was the most powerful? I'd be willing to guess he's not even close. We just haven't discovered that person yet. There are amazing achievements of archaeology and history being discovered every year in Central America. Keep your eyes peeled. You never read the same book twice when it comes to Mayan history. Thank you for joining us. Remember, next week it's on you. Visit the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Visit the Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer. Visit bradykreitzer.com or wartimepodcast.com and email me. You pick the episodes. Thank you very much to Isaac from Sacramento for choosing this episode. I had a lot of fun with it. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.